ready to worship the newborn babe who became a king who would one day rule the world, Lord. Help us to keep that in our minds as we continue to look at this Christmas season, not lose it in the midst of the hustle and bustle and all the things that are so easily distracting, Lord. I pray that we would keep our focus on you and you alone. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, it's good to be with you again as we uh, continue our series that we've been looking at. Now this will be our third week, um, calling it Part 2B, uh, because it's kind of an, extent, an extension of last week as we looked at uh, who has been heralding Christmas. Who are the ones that have told us that Christmas is coming? And now in our third week, in the first week, uh, we saw... Uh, that creation itself, the very beginning of time as we know it, creation itself being made perfectly by God with Christ, when Jesus Christ being the Son of God was there to create the world, that creation was done perfect, that it was good, there was no problems. Then we saw that the fall happened and we saw that now sin had entered the world and the world was not what it should be, it was not perfect, it was not good, And instead, it was going the opposite direction. And yet then we saw that there would be a baby, there would be a child, there would be one that would come that would crush Satan, that would crush the sin that had taken over the world and would set everything right again. And we saw that Christ was the restorer. That the baby who was born on Christmas Day was born to be the restorer of the world. To reconcile all things to himself as he lived and died, and now rose again, and is waiting to come back to fulfill all of that once again, to make this world right again. Then we looked last week, and not only with creation and the fall and just the beginning of history, but also the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets specifically spoke of Jesus, that there are many prophecies throughout the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah, that speak of someone who was to come. And when we looked at that, we saw not that they didn't look at this Messiah as this baby that we celebrate, but they looked at the Messiah as the coming king, the one who had set up his kingdom, who would rule forever on the throne of David. And we see that the Old Testament prophets pointed to that time and time and time again that Christ, the Messiah, would be king over all. So, so far we've seen that this baby we celebrate in just a week and a day now, when we celebrate Jesus being born as a baby, we understand that this was foretold from the beginning of time, that the Old Testament told us what to expect, that this baby would be the restorer and this baby would be king. The advent of the Messiah or the coming of the Messiah has indeed been foretold from throughout from the very first page of Scripture all the way to the end. But this morning, I say this is part 2B because we're talking about the same herald. The prophets heralded the coming of the King, of the Messiah. But one specific prophet that we're going to focus on, and there's others that mention it as well, 
also paint a different picture of who this Messiah would be. That yes, he would be king, but there's something important that we need to understand about this coming Messiah. That even though he would be king and rule over all, there is an important element that we so easily could forget. That this world would not understand and yet would be true of the Messiah. We are going to be looking at Isaiah 53 this morning. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 12. Uh, pretty popular passage, pretty famous passage. And I was kind of mentioning this to the elders. It's interesting because as I put this sermon together and as we thought about this, this almost becomes a little bit of what you would normally hear on a Easter type service, a Good Friday service, a, a service in which we're talking about Jesus who had given his life, and yet I believe it's just as important that we talk about it at Christmas time. That the baby that was born in the, in, in the lowly of lowlies, that he who would become king would also come as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 foretells that the coming Messiah king would come as a servant. It doesn't make sense. A king coming as a servant. That's not the point. A king is a king and a servant is a servant. And yet what we see in Isaiah 53 is very, very telling of who the Messiah would be, that yes, he would be king and rule over all, but that he would come and establish his throne and establish his kingdom by being a servant to the point of even suffering. And before we get to Isaiah 53, I want to read the last couple of verses here of Isaiah 52. So if you're there, if you'll read along with me in Isaiah 52, this kind of sets up what we're about to look at as we come to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told they see, and that which they have not heard they will understand. This passage, as we launch into Isaiah 53, tells us there is a servant who would come, who would act, act wisely, or really, the translation here, would prosper, would do the will of God, would act on the, on, the, on the behest of God. We see that this would happen. This servant would come, and this servant would be high, lifted up, and exalted. This kind of reminds us of what Isaiah and other prophets told us last week, that the coming Messiah, this servant that would come, the Messiah that would come would be the king. But here, here Isaiah doesn't call him the Messiah. He calls him the servant. It's interesting then as we go on, we see that this servant not only will be high and lifted up and exalted as king as the Messiah will be, but also there is going to be some kind of major suffering, major issue in the sense that he will not even be recognized by those that he comes to serve, that he would not even look like a human. And we know, uh, and this is getting ahead of myself a little bit, but we know that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, uh, it was so bad, the beating was so bad that he would not even resemble the human as he hung on the cross. And we see that prophecy here all the way back in Isaiah. 
And then he says that he will sprinkle many nations. Interesting, we could do a whole Bible study on what that sprinkle word means. But if you look throughout Scripture, and in Hebrews we see it, even in the New Testament, that sprinkling was done to purify. Sprinkling of blood specifically was done to purify people. So what we're seeing is that this king who was to come, who would suffer and not be recognizable, would sprinkle many nations. He would purify and bring good news to all the nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. And the idea there is that the whole world will be, in, will be seen. The whole world will be purified. The whole world will be affected by this coming servant. And so then Isaiah in chapter 53 unpacks for us who this servant is. And he talks about in the first 12 verses how we can look and see that this servant, who he is, what he's doing, how it all works out and why he's doing what he's doing. And we're going to look at that today as we go to Isaiah 53. But from Isaiah 52 here, these last couple verses, we can see that this servant that Isaiah is talking about is none other than the Messiah that he's been prophesying about throughout his book, that the other Old Testament prophets have been foretelling uh, that Jesus, that there would be a Messiah coming, that there would be the Christ coming. And so now we see that Isaiah now calls him a servant. This king who would be exalted was also a servant. Now, as I think about this, uh, I like to think about some kind of illustration to kind of get us started. And uh, um, I don't know how many of you have remembered this TV show. And maybe it's still on. I don't know. I haven't watched it in a while. But it was a TV show called Undercover Boss. And in Undercover Boss, if you don't know the concept of the show, uh, there would be the CEO of the company that would disguise himself as a regular worker. So let's just say it's the McDonald's guy, all right? So he comes down and he would work as... Uh, either a cashier or a janitor or something at one of the McDonald's and he would serve and he would work as a normal employee and he would disguise himself. Nobody would really understand that he was the CEO. Then at the end of the show, he would bring all the people that he worked in with and he was in his suit or whatever and he would or she would say, uh, hey, by the way, I know you've been working with me for a, a couple weeks, but I'm actually the CEO of the company. And of course, people would be just amazed and flabbergasted. And if they treated him well, they got like raises and bonuses and new positions. And if they didn't treat him well, well, I, they weren't so comfortable with meeting with him or her. But the idea here was simple. That there was someone who was high up, who was overseeing all the, all the business, was willing to come down and become one of the workers was willing to come down and serve alongside of others. He was willing even in points that these bosses would even be willing at points to suffer. They're trying to learn a job and they can't quite get it and it would hurt them a little bit as far as just realizing that they're, str they're struggling and there was struggle and weakness and there was even suffering in some sense and they were serving as employees even though they were themselves the CEO. There was a a popular sign saying on many church signs back at this mo back when this show was popular that Jesus is the real undercover boss but i would say today it actually is true jesus is in one in one sense the undercover king because the king of the world who would come to rule forever came as a servant came to live as a man to serve us all to suffer even though he was king and even though he would be king forever he made it a point to be a servant and so now we come to Isaiah 53 and say, all right, if this is true, if this servant is to be coming as the Messiah, we need to ask some questions. Some questions from Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, that'll tell us about the identity and the purpose of the suffering servant. 
that we know now to be the Messiah King and how we know now would be Jesus Christ. So let's ask some questions as we come to this passage. Before we do that, let's read the passage as a whole. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, and though he had done, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is a long, long passage. As we look at this, we see, first of all, I want to say, I know a lot of this is written in past tense. So you think, well, he's writing about history. But if you understand Bible prophecy, Bible prophecy many times speaks in the past tense. There's a real important reason why that happens. Because when prophecy is being made, it is as good as done. If prophecy is being made by God, it is as good as it has already been done. Prophecy might as well be history because God is the one writing it. And so therefore, we see that there's a lot of past tense here and we're looking back. But really, we're not looking back. This is 600 plus years before Jesus comes on the scene. And Isaiah writes about this suffering servant who would do all of these things And he puts it in the past because it's as good as done. It will be accomplished. So let's take some time to break this passage down to ask some questions about this servant that Isaiah is telling us about. So the first question is this. Who will be this servant? Who will be the servant? He's just got done saying there's a servant who will be king. And we understand that it's going to be the Messiah. But what do we need to know about who he's going to be? What is his identity going to be? And we see that in verses 1 through 3. The first thing we see out of this passage is, who is he? Well, he's a nobody. He's a nobody. And, and this, is a, this is a word that we would use of somebody who really just 
They're nobody of importance. We don't understand. We don't really look at them as being high, high or, or being up and being someone who is worthy of looking at. And yet, so he will be a nobody. In verses 1 through 3, we see that this servant is called uh, a young plant. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Now this passage, it's a little bit of poetry type here, and it's kind of hard to quite understand what we're looking at. But if you think about it, a young plant. The word that's used here in Hebrew for young plant is talking about something that is weak, lowly, fragile, something that is young. It's, it's, it's not matured yet. It's not strong. You think of a young tree versus a, a mature tree. If you think about that, a mature tree, you need a chainsaw to get down. A little sapling, you just can pull it out. And so it's weak, it's fragile, it is lowly, it's just a small little young plant. And so the servant would be a young plant, and not only a young plant, but would be growing out of dry ground. Well, what do plants need to live and be vibrant? They need sun and they need water. And so growing out of dry ground, if you think about a plant that would be growing out of dry ground, if it's able to grow at all, it's going to be colorless, it's going to be dull, it's going to be lifeless. Even though it might be there, it's not going to be anything to behold. You know, you think about flowers, and if they're not watered correctly, they just kind of wither and die and look kind of gross, right? So we're talking about this servant would come, and he'd be lowly, he'd be colorless, he'd be fragile, he'd be kind of dull. Nothing really to look at that you would look at and say, this is the guy. This is the one we can see. So even with these descriptions, by the way, it's interesting um, Isaiah chapter 11 talks about the Messiah being the branch of Jesse and being the root. And the same words are being used in earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11. I would encourage you to look at that. So even, even in this context, it's going to be somebody, somebody that's going to be lowly, somebody that's going to be kind of dull and colorless as far as we are concerned, that it's a reference still to the kingship of the servant. That a root from Jesse, the root from David, the king would come and rule. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, you would see that to be the case. And no doubt as Isaiah is writing this, he's thinking back to that as he uses this same analogy. <coughs> Excuse me. Just one second, I need water. All right. <clears throat> so, we see that he'll be a nobody in the sense of what we, what we see. A nobody, someone we wouldn't expect to do anything or be anything. Even worse, though, the second thing we see about this servant is he will be a reject. He will be a reject. That's a strong word. Somebody who is rejected, somebody who is just not, nobody wants anything to do with this person. This servant would be a reject, and where do we get that? Well, as we look at this passage, we look at these first three verses, and I just want to read some of the words that were used he will be despised, he will be rejected, he will know grief, and he will know sorrow. Grief and sorrow that come as a result of being rejected, of being turned away from, he is going to be despised. It says that a couple times here in this passage. I don't know about anybody who wants to live a life in which people despise and reject you, and yet the servant would be despised and the servant would be rejected 
And it didn't. It wouldn't stop there. And not only was he gonna the, these words show us that, but also we see that he will not be recognized by even his own people. We see that here, where it says that he <clears throat> that we esteemed him not at the end of verse three. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That even his own people that he came to serve would not esteem him, would not recognize him, would not understand what he was there to do. And this was the Messiah who would come to the world. This was the servant who would come as Messiah. So as we know this, these things about somebody who will be a nobody, somebody who will be a reject, well, who fits that description? And I hate to say this, I'm not trying to be derogatory towards Jesus, but we see it in Scripture. Jesus Christ fits this description to the world. He's a nobody. To the world, he's a reject. Say, well, where do you get that from? Well, let's start very simply as we come into the Christmas season. We see that he had a humble beginning. He had a humble beginning. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. You guys know that passage. You probably are going to read it next week. It is the Christmas story. It's when Jesus came as a baby, and we know that, they, that Mary and Joseph traveled. There was no room in the guest room, so they end up in the stable, and they have a baby and lay him in a manger. The Christmas story that we all know so well. But if you think about this idea of how the Messiah would be born, how the servant now would be born, uh, he was born in the lowly town of Bethlehem. His parents were from the despised town of Nazareth. He's from a lowly family, a carpenter by trade, not anything glamorous. Born in a lowly stable, a lowly stable where animals were being kept. And really, honestly, born as a lowly baby. A baby. An innocent baby that just lays there and cries and does other things you have to clean up. This is, this, but this is how the Messiah, this is how the servant would come. This is how Jesus came. He didn't come in riding in to save the day on a white horse with a sword and a crown like many assumed he would. Many assumed he would have a noble birth. Many assumed that he would come onto the scene and it would be obvious and the Messiah would rule the world and cast off the Roman oppression. This is what people were looking for. And instead, the Messiah, who is the servant, comes as a baby in a stable in a little town of Bethlehem. So we see even from the beginning of his life that he was a nobody in a, in a sense to the world. Not only was he a nobody, but he was a reject and he was despised even as a baby. Where do we know that? Well, if you continue on in the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2, we see what? Herod, right? Herod comes along and he's asking the wise men, where is this child? And come and tell me where he is and how long have you been following the star? The wise men don't come back and Herod, what does he do? He commands people to go out and slaughter innocent children for one reason, to try to kill Jesus, to try to kill the newborn king. So not only was it a lowly beginning in that sense that he was uh, in a stable and all those things and it was humble that way, but he was also despised by Herod even as a baby. It started there, it went throughout his whole life, right? We see that Jesus throughout his whole life and there was high moments and low moments, but we see that he's always hated and despised by so many as we think of the Pharisees and we think of all those who are trying to trap him and would eventually then lead to the end of his life. At the end of his life, we see that not only did he have a humble beginning, but he had a shameful ending. 
He had a shameful ending. I want to turn over to the book of Luke. This is Jesus speaking, and I think it's important that we understand this passage in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, I want to read what Jesus had to say about what was about to happen at the end of his life. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. Luke 18, 31 through 33. And taking the twelve, he who is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. The good news is that Jesus does rise again, but at the end of his life, before the resurrection we see this terrible, shameful death that he had to experience. He was mocked and mistreated terribly during his trial and his crucifixion. We could read the whole story, and we will when we get closer to Easter, and we talk about Good Friday, and that's why I say this message could go either way. But we understand that Jesus here says, this is going to fulfill what the prophets have said. Well, what have the prophets said? Well, we can go back to Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53 talked about that this, the Messiah would suffer, the servant would suffer, and the servant would die, and we'll get there. And we see that Jesus says that in Luke. He says, this is what's going to happen. His disciples didn't get it, but Jesus understood <clears throat> that his shameful ending was coming. And so as we see that this servant is going to be rejected, he's going to be a nobody, that happens here in the New Testament. He was beaten and killed by the Romans, but yet given over by the Jews. And what does that have to do with anything? Well, he's not been recognized. The Messiah was not recognized by the world he came to save. He wasn't recognized by the Jews who gave him up to crucifixion. He wasn't recognized by the Romans. He wasn't recognized by the people he came to save, just like we see here in Isaiah 53. Jesus is the suffering servant. But we've got to continue, in, continue on through this chapter of Isaiah 53 so we can get through this and see more about the servant. So the question, second question we ask after we've asked who the servant will be, then we ask, what will this servant do? What will this servant do? Well, let's read it in, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this passage we see what the servant came to do. The servant who would be a nobody and who would be rejected would do something amazing. And that is that he will be a substitute. He will substitute himself for others. This is one of the, as we get to the end of this passage, as we talk about Jesus and how he fits this, this is one of the greatest things that we can understand about what Jesus has done for us. But we see that he will substitute himself for others. He will take our sinful weaknesses upon himself. We see that born our griefs, carried sorrows, 
pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The idea is that this servant will take on our sinful weaknesses upon himself and take the punishment that we so desperately would deserve because of our sin. He would take that. He would take that all on himself. And as a substitute, what would he be doing? He will exchange his peace and his healing for our punishment. Not a very good deal for him. We get peace and healing and he gets our punishment. That was the substitution that would be made by this servant. That even though we've deserved the punishment for our sins and our iniquities and all that we've done wrong, there would be a servant that would come that would take all of those things upon himself and suffer the consequences of our mistakes and of our sin so that we can have peace and so that we can have healing. By his wounds we are healed. Through It was... Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. He would be punished for our peace. He would be wounded for our healing. And we see that to be true. But in this, we also understand the other, the other part of this is that he will suffer, yes, at the hands of God. He will suffer at the hands of God. So he's going to take things upon himself, but lest we think that the reason that Jesus... I'm getting ahead, I know, but the reason that this servant would give his life for us is because of our sake or because of us, because it's our fault, there's something we're missing. Because we see here in Isaiah 53 that he will suffer at the hands of God. Well, where do we get this from? Well, you just think about all the, uh, first of all, the suffering is pretty obvious. He will be stricken, he will be smitten, he will be afflicted, he will be pierced, he will be crushed, he will be wounded. All of these words point to one truth, and that is that Jesus, that the Messiah, that the servant, would be, would suffer, would hurt, would go through all of these things. But it's important that we understand that even in this suffering, the source of these things was God himself. In this passage, we see that he was smitten by God. Later on, then it says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I know this is in the the verses we're talking about now, but if you skip down to verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. We see a common theme here in Isaiah that it is God who who ended up being the one to cause the servant to suffer. If you think about this, (coughs) God's perfect justice had to be completed there had to be justice for sin there had to be a judgment for sin and but instead of that judgment coming down upon us it came down upon jesus his own son you see god had to let his own son suffer you think about that also in psalm 22 verse 1 if you ever want to read that psalm it's another psalm that foretells the messiah and in psalm 22 1 we see this phrase that is used my god my god why have you forsaken me which, I, which, getting ahead, you know Jesus says that on the cross. But in, in Psalm 22, we see this idea that God had to actually forsake, in a very real sense, His Son. Turn His back on His Son because He was taking all the sin for us. And God could not look upon sin, and so therefore the, He had to punish sin, and He punished sin in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And of course, and I've already said this so many times because I can't help but getting ahead of myself, Jesus was the one who did this. This servant that's described that would suffer, that God would cause to suffer for our sins, would cause to suffer for our forgiveness, Jesus was the one who did this. A passage that is a a parallel passage in the New Testament of Isaiah 53. No doubt Peter is quoting this in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. In 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, this is what we read. For to this you have been called, because because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now listen to this. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus was the one who suffered. Jesus was the one who bore our sins. Jesus is the one who heals us through his wounds. Jesus is the one who shepherds the wayward sheep. Remember as we go back, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. The idea is we had walked away from God and our sins had separated ourselves from God. That our sin has made it so that we were not part of the fold of God but when Jesus comes and bears our sins and suffers for us and heals us then he brings us into the fold he becomes our shepherd and of course I already mentioned this was to appease God's justice Jesus on the cross says my God my God why have you forsaken me because he understood that the punishment that he was being dealt upon, that sin that he was paying for, the sin that he was paying for as it got thrown onto his body, he understood that that was God's wrath being poured down for the justice because sin needed to be dealt with. And God could not look at him. See, the Jews, the Romans, and even we did not crucify Jesus. Really, God did. He was dealing out his wrath on sin. And that should deepen our understanding of what Christ really did, of what Jesus really did. Jesus took his own Father's wrath on him for us. That was his motivation. And so we see that he must be the suffering servant. Let's move on and look at question three. We need to keep moving here. Question three in Isaiah 53, how will the servant suffer? So if we've seen that the servant will suffer, how will that happen? Well, he will die. In the next passage, um, and uh, this is in the next, uh, this is in verses 7 through 9. 7 through 9, we see that Jesus, or the, sorry, the, the servant would die. The servant would die. And how do we get that? Well, there's several phrases in here. It says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, right? That's one way we see that. Uh, we also see that he would be taken away later on and also we see uh, that he would be cut off from the land of the living there's no other way you can say that he's cut off from the land of the living in these verses and then finally we also see that he would make his grave he will make his grave 
He made his grave with the wicked and with rich man in his death. And we understand as we go on, we'll look at how Jesus fulfilled that as well. He would die, but here's the other thing we need to understand, that yes, the suffering would lead him to die for our sins, but he would suffer perfectly. He would suffer perfectly. Why does this matter? Well, dying to pay the price of our sins would not have been possible if Jesus wouldn't have been perfect. If Jesus wouldn't have had no sin in his life, then he would have had to pay for his own sins and would not be able to pay for ours. And that is the truth of Scripture, and we see that he indeed was the perfect sacrifice. We see that, he, that the servant did not sin in word or in deed, even though he was suffering and dying. Even through the suffering and even through death, the servant would not sin with his mouth, the servant would not sin in his deeds. We see that here in Isaiah chapter 53. It says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. It wasn't fair. There was no reason. It said that he had gone to the grave with the wicked. He died. He would die a death that he didn't deserve because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He had not done or said anything sinful and yet would be the sacrifice that was needed. And like I said, I keep getting ahead of myself, but we see that Jesus was this perfect sacrifice. Jesus was this perfect sacrifice sacrifice back in the book of first peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 25 first peter 2 21 through 25 we've already looked at this once we'll look at it again we're going to see that he indeed was the perfect sacrifice For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. We see that Jesus died, suffered and died without sin. Without sin. And now we understand that Jesus, as a perfect sacrifice, was able to die for our sin, to pay the price for our sin because he didn't have to pay for his own because there was none there. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the unblemished lamb that could be sacrificed for our forgiveness. Another verse you could look up on this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become righteous. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5. And so the idea then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That was what Jesus did. And that ties directly into our last question. That ties directly into question four, which is why will the servant suffer? How will he suffer? He will die a perfect death. He will suffer perfectly. But why? Well, as we move on in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, we see some very obvious things. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and has put him to grief. And his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear 
their iniquities. The first thing, why does the servant suffer? It's to justify his children. Or as Isaiah 53 would say, his offspring. To justify, to declare righteous his children. We see in this passage that I just read a few things. His death will be an offering for sin. That his death would be the way to pay for the sin that we've committed. It would be an offering for sin. We also then see in this passage that his death will deposit righteousness to us. It says that we will be accounted righteous. We will be declared righteous. When God looks at us, he won't see our sin, but he'll see the blood of Christ. He'll see the righteousness that Christ has lived for us. And then finally, we see that his death allows him to intercede for us. His death will allow him to intercede. That's at the end of chapter of verse 12. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That Jesus would literally, or that the Messiah, the servant, would literally become the go-between. The go-between with God that would, would intercede and show us to be righteous before God so that the justice that was paid on the cross would be remembered and we wouldn't be paying for our sins because they've already been paid for. That He took our sin and gave us an opportunity to be declared righteous before God so that we do not have to experience the punishment, we don't have to experience the wrath for that. But not only did the servant suffer to justify his children, he, he suffered to share with his children. See a couple things here. It says here that he was numbered with the transgressors, bore the sins of many. The servant will share his identity. The servant will share his identity. He will become human. He will become human. He will become one of us. And therefore share our identity and have the opportunity then to give us a new identity. And he will also share his victory. He will share his victory. Then I will divide with him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because of what Jesus did, he had victory over sin. He had victory over death. He had victory over despair. He had victory over this dark world. And we can share that victory with him. That is the suffering servant. That is why the servant will suffer, is to justify his children and to share with his children. And of course, Jesus is the one who is doing these things. Jesus is the one who is doing these things, who is justifying us, who is sharing with us. And if you have questions about that, well, let's just go to the book of Romans. Let's go to the book of Romans and see that Jesus indeed fulfills the role of the suffering servant as he justifies us and as he shares his identity and his victory with us. We're going to start in the book of Romans in chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 19. We could read the whole passage, but for time's sake, we're going to read just this one verse, and it says this, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And of course, that's Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is Jesus. And so we see that the work of Jesus, when he died on the cross, was to justify us to declare a former sinner to be righteous before God. 
That was what Jesus did and is doing. And let's turn over to Romans chapter 8. And there's no question here that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. It's amazing to see. Romans chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We could continue reading there, but this we see. Indeed, Jesus intercedes for us and gives us victory. We are conquerors through Christ, and he intercedes for us all the time. Let us not forget that the work of Christ did not end on the cross. The work of Christ did not end when he rose again, but he continues to work on our behalf as he intercedes before God and says, Look, this is my child. He is righteous. I declare him righteous before you. And we know that we have victory. So the four questions we ask all point to one very obvious conclusion, right? The one very obvious conclusion is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of the servant that was foretold by Isaiah over 600 years before he was even born. That on Christmas when that baby came, that baby was more than a baby, that baby was a restorer, that baby was a king, that baby would be a servant that would suffer for us and that would give us victory over sin through his sacrifice. That is who Jesus is. And Jesus himself confirms this in Mark 10.45. Many of you know the verse. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus understood that this was his role, that he was the suffering servant, that he would serve his people. And how would he serve his people? He would serve his people through dying so that they would have a ransom. They would be, he would buy back, buy them back. That's what God would do. That's what Jesus would do through his death. He came not to be served as a king, even though he was king, but he came to serve us. If that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. That Christmas, when Jesus is born, he came to serve us. Not because we deserved it, not because we're anything special, but because he loved us so much that he came to serve. That the king was willing to come down and suffer and serve among us. That is the truth of Christmas. So my questions as we conclude, do you believe in the king who suffered and served you? Do you believe in any of this? That Jesus came, that he suffered for your sin? Do you even believe that you have sin? Well, we all do. We've all gone our own way. We've all said to God, I'm going to do things my way and not yours. We've all done that. We've all sinned. We've all gone against the commands of God. And therefore, since we've all sinned, we need a Savior. We need to be punished for our sins because God is just and sin needs to be punished. And yet he sent Christ to take that punishment for us. That's a beautiful thing. That is what Christmas represents. That a baby came. That a baby came to take our sin. 
take the punishment that we deserved. And so do you believe in that king? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he has the power to overcome your sin? Have you come to him and asked for forgiveness and given your life to him and given it all up and said, I believe in you. I believe that you came, that you died for me, that you rose again, that you're waiting for me again. I believe all that and I want to commit my life to you. If you have not done that, then you need to commit to the king. You need to commit to the one who came to serve you. Remember that as we think about the baby born in a manger, born in the stable, that he died for you. Are you following, another question to ask, are you following Jesus' example? You know, so maybe you've accepted Jesus, you understand that he came to serve and to save us through his death, and you've accepted that as your own, and you have committed your life to him, maybe that is you, but here's my question, are you following his example, and are you serving others sacrificially? You see, because we're called to be like Christ, we're called to be like Jesus, and we're seeing here that he was willing to suffer, that he was willing to serve one another, that he was willing to suffer and serve others. Are we willing to do the same? And so as we come to the end here, we need to once again remember that Jesus was and is so much more than just a baby that was born on Christmas Day. That that baby would grow up to suffer, that baby would grow up to die, so that we could have eternal life so that we would not have to pay for our sins if we'll only come to him and ask for forgiveness and ask him to be our king. So this Christmas season, if you haven't done it, do it. And if you know people who haven't, we need to proclaim that king everywhere we go. If everyone please rise as we sing a final song.